0: Church family, it is that time of year again. We are just a few weeks away from our uh, men's conference. We started this last winter and just really had an incredible turnout from our church. So we're doing it again uh, on February the uh, 24th. It's going to be from 8.30 to noon here at our church. They're going to have breakfast together. Uh, this year, we've invited Hobson Butoh, who pastors Pecoson Baptist Church, a dear friend of ours, partner with us through the Pillar Network. Uh, to come and talk about taking charge of your faith. This is something all of the men in our church need to hear. So I gave this charge uh, last year. Let me just briefly give it again. Wives, do what needs to be done to have your husbands at this conference. Uh, Help them make a good choice. Encourage them. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, take them to the information desk after this is over and make them sign up, but if that's what you need to do, Uh, To get them here on the 24th for that morning, Uh, have them here of this time of encouragement and wives, as I did last summer. I'll do the same. I'll say the same things to your husbands uh, as we uh, prepare for our women's conference uh, this coming June. More information about that uh, coming soon. But if you would, uh, men of this church, I challenge you. Let's gather together on that uh, on that uh, Saturday morning, eat breakfast together, and be challenged from God's word. I invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we are going to uh, conclude chapter 7, which has really been an aside as we've been thinking about church matters. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians really is familial and marital matters, and this will be the fourth sermon in this chapter before we move really more back into our main theme of church matters in uh, chapter 8. As you find your place let me just quickly say, because I'm going to be asked like 30 times, don't you just love what we did with the air conditioning in here? <laughs> some of you haven't looked up since you've been in here and now you've noticed it. Um, we've had a company in here the last couple of weeks working on our duct work, doing some cleaning and some sealing. They didn't quite finish this week uh, and they've got to come back in here tomorrow and reattach everything and this was the safest way for them to leave it without stuff falling on you, okay? Okay. So, that's why it looks like this. If you're a guest with us, it doesn't normally look like this. It'll be back in order. Now, with that said, so I don't have to answer the question afterwards, if you'll stand with us, uh, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting verse 25, we're going to read down through the end of the chapter this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on let those who have wives live as though they have none and those who mourn as those they were as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as those as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away I want you to be free from anxieties the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the lord how to please the Lord? But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the man is uh, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers here at Nansman River Baptist Church, for the unity of the faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we share together. While our backgrounds are not common, our bond of the unity of Christ is common together thank you for binding us this church family to one another we pray God for our opportunity this morning in your word addressing a subject that is not often spoken of in church the subject of singleness we recognize that there are many in this room who have never married There are some in this room whose marriages have ended. And that the words of encouragement from the Apostle Paul for them may be difficult today. And for the married in the room, the words of the Apostle Paul may seem as if they do not apply to our circumstances. But would we, together, collectively, trust that your word is good and for your church... Would it instruct us? Would it correct us? Would it encourage us all towards godliness, we pray, in Christ Jesus? Amen. You may be seated. Church family, as I prayed, this is somewhat of a unique uh, sermon. In this fourth and final sermon, really kind of dealing with marriage and sexuality, we turn our attention to the primary subject of singleness. Now, Paul addresses multiple groups of people who are under this uh, umbrella of singleness. He's not just talking about young people who find themselves yet married, although they are certainly in view. Through the varying words that Paul uses here, we know, and what he has already addressed early in the chapter, we know that he is thinking of those who have never married, those who are even engaged to be married, and those who have either become divorced or widowed. And that Paul lumps them all into this category, even though he treats them somewhat differently, of singles within the church, the unmarried within the church. And yes, there is certainly a difference between a widow and a widower and a young adult who has never married, but some of the instructions in the scripture for these groups are shared instructions, but all of these instructions are for the church. Let's just think about what we collectively say that we value together. As a church, we have six core beliefs and six corresponding core values, and we have a core belief about the family and about marriage, and the corresponding core value reads like this. We value marriage and family. We will work to honor marriages, support families, partner with parents to disciple their children, but there is not a period there, and encourage singles in their commitment to Christ. While this singleness is not a subject that I will often preach on because it is not a subject that often arises in the scriptures, it is a subject that we have even addressed in our own core values because we recognize that as a diverse, multi-generational congregation, we will have single people among us. So I did a little bit of studying this week just to see, did a little bit of research we have 351 members of Nansman River Baptist Church. Now, there are probably more people uh, on campus than that this morning because we have guests and we have children that are with us, but there are 351 people who have covenanted in membership with us. 19 of those people are under the age of 18, so I'm just, let's just set them aside and say it's good they're not married yet. <laughs> that leaves us 332 adult members, those 18 and over. Of those 332, to the best that we could determine, this is what is in our record system, 253 of them are married, 53 of them are either single or divorced, and 26 are widows or widowers, meaning about 75% of our congregation is married, and about 25% of our adult congregation is not married. Now, if you add the children and teenagers into that, it would it would obviously go up significantly. But of our adult members, we're in about three-fourths currently married and about one-fourth not married. Now, we compare this to our culture. Marriage is on a rapid decline in the United States. A rapid decline. For instance, one of the things that happens most often in marriage is is childbearing and child rearing. Do you know more children in the United States are being born into single-parent homes and raised in single-parent homes than they are in two-parent homes? That now, for the first time, just a couple of years ago, we crossed this threshold that of American adults. There are more single American adults than there are married. It's about 45% of the American adult population is married. So that that number used to be somewhere right, like at 80%. And over the course of the last three or four generations, really since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, we have seen a steady decline where now, if you're married in America, you are in the minority. So this subject of singleness for some of us in here who have been married, are married, have been married 10, 20, 30 years, you may think, what does this really have to do with me? Well, you are a part of a church that is seeking to make disciples that make disciples of all people. And we say that we're not only going to value marriage and family and honor marriages and support families and partner with parents, but that we're also going to encourage singles in their commitment to Christ. So we all have a shared responsibility to understand God's instructions to single people. And I'm not attempting to be morbid here, but I do I think this is an important point. You may not be married forever. There are wonderful men and women in this church sitting in here right now who are widows and widowers who wish, maybe above anything else in in this world, that their husband or wife would be sitting beside them. And they never expected that the day would come that they would not be. But they now find themselves in this category And you may too one day. So these are important instructions for our church in how we make disciples and how we either live as single people or may have to at some point in the future. The main idea of today's sermon is that unmarried believers, regardless of why they're unmarried, but unmarried believers should be a vital and vibrant component of any local church. I'm going to preach this sermon in the context of the local church. I'm preaching it to a local church. This is written in the context of Paul writing to a, a local church, and it's, and it's an encouragement of how single people are supposed to live out their calling, as we considered last week, to live out their station in life whatever, for whatever period of time that is, how they're supposed to do that faithfully as a part of the church. You know, every time I teach Connect classes, once a month, I talk about our core beliefs and core values. I get to this six core beliefs, six core values, and I always talk about children. And I always say, you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. So we treat them like that. We don't treat them like a nuisance. We don't shove them to the side somewhere and say, you know, this is the only place that children can be. If you want your child to be in this room with you, great. We're glad that they're here, that, that, that children are, are a blessing. You know, sometimes singles feel the same way in a church. Sometimes they'll feel like a church is just wanting to shove them aside, that they're, they're wanting to push them over to the edge. And, and, and that we, we elevate marriage to the point where single people feel like they're not really living up to their potential in the Christian life and their sanctification in the Christian life. And as if they're doing something wrong because they're not married Well, let me just say, if you've ever felt that way at Nansman River, I I sincerely apologize. It would never be our goal to make you feel that way. We desire for all believers, married and unmarried, to have a vital and vibrant role here in our church. You matter. So let's look at the apostles' instructions here. We're going to divide this kind of lengthy section into three parts. The first that singleness may be better for some believers. Now I'm going to stress the word may here in this first point and I'm going to stress the word may in the second point because I do think Paul is providing some guidance that's intended to be guidance, not not a law, not a rule, not something where he would say you've got to do this. So we're going to use the word may as, as instruction for us. Singleness may be better for some believers. Let's look at these first few verses together. Now concerning the betrothed, just stop there for a minute. So doesn't betrothed, uh, your Bibles may say virgin, doesn't this, isn't this talking about a specific class of people? Well, uh, New Testament scholars, little divided, and I'll be honest, I'd studied all week. I, can't, I don't have a place where I'm landing and saying, here is, I know what Paul was talking about, other than when we take the full thing into account, he's talking about single people. It's, it's possible that he's talking about engaged people, but their engagement in first century Rome And that culture is very different than our understanding of it. So what we don't wanna do is superimpose our understanding of what does it mean to be betrothed or engaged upon the text. So let's just read this as if he's writing to people who are not married. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by whom the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So as we saw two weeks ago, Paul is going to say that Jesus didn't address this topic. Jesus didn't address the topic of a, a Christian spouse being abandoned by their unchristian spouse. So Paul addresses it. And obviously the church has written to Paul and asked about, about unmarried people, what should they do, maybe specifically engaged people, what should they do? And Paul says, Jesus didn't talk about it, but I'm going to give you some guidance. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Let's just stop at verse 26. And There's just lots and lots of questions in in the exposition of this passage. I'm going to just be honest with you. Because Paul says there's a present distress, but he doesn't tell us what the present distress is. He He assumes that his audience knows what the present distress is, and there's two possibilities. It could be a general Christian persecution present distress that we could assume that all churches feel in some measure and that the Corinthian church was specifically feeling at that time. It's also argued that the present distress could have been an actual acute issue that was going on in Corinth. For instance, historians tell us that there was a, a that there was a distinct famine that happened in that part of the world that would have somewhat aligned to the same time period that Paul's writing this. So he could have been writing to people who were who were in a very distressing period of time we don't know but he says in light of that he basically repeats what he said earlier i think it may be better for you just to remain as you are and then he asks some rhetorical questions are you bound to a wife and then he gives instructions do not be do not seek to be free are you free from a wife do not seek a wife but if you do marry you have not sinned and if, you are, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. So here's what the apostle is saying. That for some, whether those who are single, single again, those who may even be engaged, he's saying it may be better, depending on your circumstances, for you to remain single. That singleness isn't wrong. Some, somehow the church, because we have so promoted marriage as a good institution from God, which, hear me, marriage is a good institution from God. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, when I talked about the institution of marriage, you can go back on our website and listen to that sermon. We addressed it from the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage is good. But sometimes the church will so emphasize the goodness of marriage that we forget to recognize the instructions of Scripture and the simple fact that some Christians will remain single for their entire lives. Some Christians will be single for a period of their life, either in young adulthood if something happens to the marriage later, if, if someone passes away and they become a widow or a widower, they find themselves single, and they may remain single until they're, until they're passing, even though Paul specifically gives them permission to marry again, they, they don't, they're not required to do so. And, and it's, it, 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 is, it is not sinful for them to do it, and in some cases, depending on their circumstances, it may actually be good for them. That there are those who God gifts in this way to remain single and that the church should view this as good for others in the church. This isn't a permanent gifting, but maybe it is a gifting that the Lord has given you during this specific period of time maybe you, you loved being married to your spouse and they have passed away and you have no desire whatsoever to marry again. That, that's, a, that's a fine and good position for you to have and the Lord gifts you in it insofar as you're able to do so without, uh, without sin. And then there are some who may be going through what verse 26 describes, some kind of present distress that your life circumstances may lead you for at least this period of time. To, to remain single, to, to not marry. And, and so the scriptures do give us the ability to, to look in our lives and say, is it the right time for me to do this? Now, for those of you that have heard me talk about marriage um, more, more than just in this series, I'm, I'm a, obviously a proponent of marriage, been married 22 years and got married young. Now, for some of you in the room, particularly some of our Senior adults, when I say I got married young and you say you got married young, like you got married in high school. Praise the Lord, right? I got married in college. The like millennials and Gen Zers in this room are like, you got married in college, you were a baby. I kind of was, I was 21, my wife was 20. We had no money, we had no jobs. We had this ratty little apartment and that's what we had. And I could have looked at that and gone, man, I'm kind of in a present distress. Maybe I don't need to take a wife. But we did it and we made it work. We look back on those times, you know, eating 29-cent McDonald's cheeseburgers on Tuesday is some of the happiest days of our lives. And so we're not saying that the present distress means you have to say I'm not going to get married, but you are given the freedom in Scripture to look at your life situation and to gauge whether now is the right time. Could I just... I wasn't planning to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Parents, I I do wanna encourage you in this. If you so promote your child getting an education, like going to college, or starting a career, over them being married, what you may be doing is driving them towards sin. You may be telling them, I would rather you live in sin and finish your college degree. And the apostle has given us very clear instructions that if we can't control ourselves, we need to marry, because to marry is better than to burn with passion. And so if your 21-year-old comes to you and says, I want to get married, maybe at least consider it, because that may be what they need to maintain their spiritual holiness. So marriage is good. Singleness is, is good, Right? Paul's addressed this earlier. I I read this passage a few weeks ago. I told you we would come back to it. Just look up at verses seven through nine. I wish that all were as I am, Paul says in verse seven, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Marriage is certainly... Uh, preferred over singleness if one is unable to practice self-control, and here's what the scriptures recognize: in all likelihood, most of us will be unable to, for a lifetime, practice uh, not be able to practice self-control. Most of us won't receive the same kind of gifting that Paul received towards singleness. But for some, singleness may very well be better. But it's certainly not commanded, nor is it to be seen as better for everyone. It's not that married people are somehow weaker because they got married and it is not to be seen that single people are weaker necessarily because they have not been married. For someone who would say that they believe singleness is better for them and maybe that's you in here, maybe you're in that 25% and you're saying for right now in my life or maybe for my whole life singleness is better for me. My question to you would be why? Not that it's a wrong position, but why do you hold that position? Because if you hold that position out of some sort of selfishness, meaning I want to be able to be in charge of my life, and every now and then we hear this from from, from young ladies that grow up in a church like ours that say men and women are equal and yet distinct and that men should be the spiritual leaders in the church. and I men should to be the spiritual leaders at home. And so every now and then, a young lady will grow up in a context like that and they'll go, you know what? I don't think I could submit to somebody and so I'm just not gonna marry them. Well, that's selfishness, right? Or, you know, I like having my money and I like being able to travel and, and, and do all the things that, that, that I wanna do. You know, these aren't, these aren't healthy whys for a Christian to have. But if you feel like God has gifted you in that, the scriptures say that's, that's a fine position for you to have. Another issue within singleness that we have to address is the singles that begrudge their singleness. They look at it and they question God and say, why? Why have you made me like this? Why, why can't you lead me to a spouse? These are the singles who desperately want to get married. And again, there's nothing wrong with a single person wanting to marry. Paul says that if they want to get married, they've not sinned. But we can't begrudge the position that the Lord has given us. We are the clay, He is the potter. So we say singleness may be better for some believers for a portion of or all of their adult lives. Number two, singles may, here it is again, more easily prioritize kingdom commands and more easily devote themselves to kingdom priorities want to consider this in two sections so let's read verses 29 through 31 together this is what I mean brothers Paul's going to explain this to us and can we all just say thank you because I'm a little confused the appointed time has grown very short from now on let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as those Uh, as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of the world is passing away. So Paul says both marriage and singleness must be viewed in light of eschatological importance, meaning we have to have the coming kingdom in mind when we're viewing things like marriage, singleness, families. Now, Keep in mind, Paul is writing this in the context of the first couple of generations of Christians. And they certainly had in their mind that Christ was returning imminently, that Christ was coming back. And every generation of Christians since then has trusted that Christ could return, that Christ could come back. If you would have told them then that we would go at least 2,000 years without Jesus coming back, they wouldn't have believed you. They thought it was imminent, and we still believe it's imminent. That's part of looking towards the sky and waiting. So then we view all matters of life through this this end time, this, this return of the kingdom framework in our minds. Paul writes about this, for instance, in Romans 13. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is near to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here's what Romans uh, Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 7 agree on that this present world is passing away. And so Christians must rightly order our perspective on life based off of the coming kingdom. We have to ask the question on all of these things. And notice Paul talks in these verses in 29 through 31 about things other than just marriage. He talks about people who are mourning and people who are rejoicing and people who are buying and selling things because he's expanding this view and he's saying this, that all Christians need to ask the question, is what I'm about to do worth it in light of the kingdom of God, which could come at any moment? So we ask that question about everything, including marriage. No, it doesn't mean we're we're not going out, as some have done historically, if you read about these things, where we become so convinced that Christ is coming back on a certain day that we empty our bank accounts, we give it all away, we sell everything we have, we go stand out in the field, and we look up, and we wait. That's not what we're doing. This is about a spiritual heart posture where we recognize that everything that we hold dear in this life will one day pass away that this world is not our home, that these things that we have will not go with us. And even our relationships, Jesus teaches on this, even our relationships in heaven, even our marital relationships in heaven will be different. So our kingdom priorities change and singles may be more, may more easily prioritize kingdom commands like this. It doesn't mean that they will, but that they have the ability to. Why? Look at verse 32 through 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure the undivided devotion of the Lord. Let's just start with verse 35. He's not seeking to lay any restraint. So he emphasizes again, singleness, fine. Marriage, fine. For some, singleness is good. For others, marriage is going to be good. But we, we have a comparison between the priorities here of the married and the, and versus the unmarried. That, that Paul is saying for the unmarried person, they're able to be anxious about things of the Lord, about how to please the Lord, but for the married man and the married woman, they're, they're, they're less able to do so. So let's just think about our spiritual priorities and how this relates to the discipleship that all believers experience. You see, we are commanded as Christians to have a love for and obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that outweighs all other allegiances, even our marital and familial allegiances, that I am supposed to be allegiant to Christ above my allegiance to my wife and children. So where in the world do we see that? Well, we see it in Luke 14, verse 26, where where Jesus says, "'If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother,' and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not actually saying that we should hate these people. He's talking about our devotion. Our greatest love in this world must be viewed through the lens of temporal versus eternal, and our eternal love for Christ must outweigh our temporal love for things in this world, even our spouse and our children. And so, From a level of spiritual commitment, those who are married are going to struggle to do this in principle more than those who are single because Paul says single people aren't having to worry about the commitment to their spouse because they don't have one. And so their commitment to to their spouse doesn't stand the chance of getting in the way of their commitment to the Lord. There's also a practical consideration that we must see here as it relates to obedience in Christian life. Which obedience is really just how we live out these spiritual priorities that we've made just kind of in real time. If we go back to verse 28, which we considered in that previous section at the end, Paul says, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles... And I will spare you of that. Then in verses 33 and 34, he says that husbands are going to have anxiety about their wives. Wives are gonna have anxiety about their husbands. So marriage, Paul argues, can can replace being anxious about things of the Lord with being anxious about how to please one's spouse. So I'm gonna just say what Paul's saying. Marriage brings trouble and anxiety. I'm really grateful, men, that you were wise enough not to say amen right there. It would have been cold cereal and toast all week long. You did good. I'm proud of you. But this is what the scriptures say. Okay, so be mad at the scriptures. Marriage brings trouble and anxiety. Spouse equals trouble. And then those, that husband and wife tend to do the things that husbands and wives do that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and then children come. And, and children bring trouble. And so now you, you're, you're a husband and a father or you're a wife and a mother, and you got all kinds of just trouble. You're just surrounded by trouble. Just everywhere you look, there's, there's trouble. Let's just think about it like this. If somebody in this room were to stand up and yell fire, okay, Single people would be like, oh, there's the exit. I gotta worry about these people sitting on this front row, right? Because they're my responsibility. Some of y'all got lots of children. Y'all are doomed, right? I mean, <laughs> how are you gonna get them all out the door? Sorry. I, I mean, this is just a practical example of how the, just the natural course of being married and having a family can do exactly what Paul says it can do. But I want to address something. He says the unmarried man and woman, in verses 32 and 34, are anxious about the things of the Lord. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I read that. I, I mean, I've read this passage how many times this week, but i sat down Monday. I started my prep on Monday, and I sat down and I read that on Monday. And my first response to reading those two verses was, really Paul how many young unmarried people do you know cuz i know some and and so young unmarried people in the room is this really your posture are you really anxious about things of the lord because you have the freedom to be paul says by not being married you have you have the freedom to be anxious of the things of the lord and seek more easily to 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 fulfill the the commands of the Lord and prioritize the things of the Lord. This is why we're saying that singles may more easily prioritize kingdom commands and more easily devote themselves to kingdom priorities. They may be able to do it. They have the freedom to do it. doesn't mean they will do it. It's not automatic. And if their desires to be married, their desires to have a family, their desires for sexual gratification, if these desires were to stand in the way of those things, Paul says, get married if the lord provides an opportunity for you to get married and and those you're unable to rightly structure your priority get married it's fine for you to do so and even good for some while for others it would be good for them to for a period of time or for their whole lives to remain married, unmarried number three singleness like marriage is neither sinful nor sanctifying in and of itself I really think this is crucial to our understanding. I have really dabbled in this the entire sermon. I dealt with it a couple of weeks ago. But I just really want to stress this because in the in the life kind of in the in the life of Christianity that we know, in modern evangelical, conservative, complementarian Christianity, we have so exalted marriage that that again, sometimes we feel like we're shuffling singles to the side. And we should see neither of those as sanctifying nor sinful in and of themselves. That is really the posture of the heart and the and the priorities that one sets for themselves within the kingdom of God. That determines whether their singleness and the way they view it is sinful, or if their marriage and the way they view it is sinful. Let's consider these last verses together. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed if his passions are strong and has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control, and is determined that this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that too I have the Spirit of God. In summation, here's what Paul says. Marriage can be good. Singleness can be good. He even says singleness can be better if our priorities are right. Both can be sanctifying. Both can be sinful. You say, how is marriage sinful? Well, marriage can be sinful for the single person if they're idolizing marriage, begrudging their singleness. Marriage can be sinful for the married couple who idolize their marriage they they exalt their marriage their relationship with their spouse that it becomes who they are and it becomes an idol to them well marriage can be sinful for those who enter within enter into marriage vows flippantly marriage can be sinful because you marry the wrong person knowingly marry the wrong person paul's already addressed those who who were who were married to a lost person as a lost person converted and are still married to a lost person. We addressed that a couple of weeks ago. But here he says, if her husband dies, this is generally applied to all single people. Single people are free to be married, to whom they wish, only in the Lord. So single people, your dating pool is much smaller than that of unmarried people. And you need to understand this. We need to view this, I mean this, as a church discipline issue when I say church discipline issue, I mean this is something that we need to encourage and correct one another in personally, and if necessarily, even corporately. And that is single members of this church need to be held to Scripture, that if they get married, they need to marry a believer, because the instruction in Scripture is for them to marry a believer. And by the way, I could pair you with people in our church who are married to unbelievers And they could tell you of the trouble, even though they have remained committed to those marriages. And thank God for that. They followed the instructions of Scripture for them. But we need to rightly order our priorities and rightly order the way that we think about marriage. Following the instruction that we had already seen in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul has said, you need to be you need, you need to be confident in the Lord in the, in the position that he has given you, whether that is single for a period, single for your life, widowed, whatever it is, you need to understand that that is what God has for you, at least in this moment. And your identity is not in your singleness. Your identity is not in your marriage. Your identity is not in your former marriage. Your identity is not in your family or your, you being a parent. Your identity as a Christian needs to be firmly fixed in Christ. You see, church, this isn't just good advice about how we should think about being single and how we should maybe get married one day. This is is gospel edification in our lives. That You're not defined by the person who may or may not be sitting next to you in this room. If you are, then you've idolized that person or you've idolized that empty seat. Your identity needs to be found in the Savior who gave himself so that you may have eternal life. That's, th- this, is, this is who the Christian is. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he alone saves us. Getting married won't save you. Staying single won't save you. Christ alone can save you. So what? Single believers, single believers should leverage their singleness for the kingdom, and the church should regularly encourage them in their commitment to Christ. It's really two sides of this. Let's just think to our single people, those who are currently unmarried. You have, according to this text, the ability to, to more easily prioritize kingdom priorities in your life. You likely have more free time than married people, particularly married people who have children. I know you have more free time because all we are is taxi drivers. Yeah. And so you have the ability to leverage your singleness, even if it's just for a period of time, for the sake of the kingdom of God. You, young single people, you can go live overseas for a couple years and be a short-term missionary. You, you could go with a church plant and help plant a church because your family's not rooted somewhere. It doesn't mean married people can't do those things. Single people can do them e- more easily. We looked at this instruction from Christ last week in Matthew 6 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that all of these things will be added to us. This should be the goal for all of us, but single people are in a position to do this in a way that is unique. So singles, do it. Be be the first to volunteer, be the first to give yourself to things of the kingdom, recognizing that one day you may be married, one day you, you, you may have some of these other anxieties that Paul speaks of, but in this present moment, you have the ability to leverage your time, your resources. For the sake of the kingdom of God, singles are in a position to do that in a way that some others in the church aren't. But for the church, we must regularly encourage singles their commitment to Christ. We say we will do this in our core values. The question is, do we? You see, we are instructed in Ephesians chapter 4, to speak the truth in love to one another as we grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ, for whom the whole body, not just married people in the body, the whole body, that's every one of us who is a believer in Christ, who is united with this church in covenant membership, the whole body, young and old, married, unmarried, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let me, let me illustrate this in the context of our church. I get asked this very rarely, but I get asked it occasionally. Why don't we have a adult singles small group? You wanna know why? Because if we did that, what we would be doing is the exact opposite of what we are saying we wanna do. We would be taking that group of people. We would be placing them over in a corner we would be putting them in their own room and saying, this is where you go. And, and if you meet somebody in that room and you get married, you'll get to graduate and join one of our married classes. You see, we've made a, we've made a conscious decision not to do that, but to do something else. To have zero limitations at all for who, adult, who joins what adult small groups, except for the two or three that are men only and women only. A man can't join that woman-only group. A woman can't join that men's-only group. Um, But most of our small groups are co-ed. And we don't tell you this is where 25-year-olds go, although a lot of our 20-somethings are in one group. We don't tell you this is where 80-year-olds go, although a lot of our older adults are in certain groups. We don't tell you this is where single people go or widowed people go or divorced people go or married people go. No, why? Because we are all the body. We are all joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. We are all making the body grow up as we build ourselves up in love. So we want single people and newlywed people and people without children and people with children all interacting with each other because we are all the body together. And by doing that, here's what we do. We fulfill our core value to encourage singles in their commitment to Christ because you you're you're showing them that that they're not different because they're single that they're one of you that they're they're part of you they're part of us and praise God for them so church together let's be committed to what we have heard over the last several weeks in 1 Corinthians 7, which I would label a biblical sexual ethic, that we rightly order the priorities of marriage and singleness, that we rightly think about how God has placed us where we are today and the calling that we have today and that we understand the temptation of sexual desire and its right fulfillment in the place of marriage, its wrong fulfillment out in the world, the temptation of the world, encouraging every one of us together to grow up into this body as we equip one another regardless of our marital status. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a diverse, multi-generational body of believers, which means we're going to have single people and single again people and widows and widowers who each find themselves in varying stages of life but who are vital and vibrant parts of our faith family. God, would you impress upon them how they can utilize their time and resources that they may have because of their singleness for the, for the furtherance of your kingdom and the work of your church. And may we together embrace the mission of our church to make disciples that make disciples of everyone, who is a part of us, of everyone, regardless of if they're married or not, single or not, single again or not. We thank you, God, for how you call us to love and encourage each and every one, And we pray, God, that we would all together find our identity, not in a person in this world, but a Savior who died in our place so that we may have life pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, will you stand with us as we sing?